Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And if you're a fan of Soundboard, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. In a few minutes, we discuss an exhibit coming to the bridge that displays work from the tri-continental solidarity movement of the 20th century. Plus, later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Golaska about next week's state elections. But first, I sit down with Charlottesville tomorrow to talk a little bit more about UVA's raise to contracted workers. Today, we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes and editor Elliot Robinson. And while Elliot and I have come completely unprepared for this Halloween episode, Emily Hayes has put the team on her back and has come dressed in a homemade Captain Marvel costume. So in addition to being a great reporter, she's evidently also a skilled costume designer. They're here to talk about last week's announcement that the university will extend its $15 per hour minimum wage to contract workers. So you might remember that last week, Hannah Russell Hunter talked about this announcement and the history and context of wages at UVA. But this week, we're going to talk about the impact this announcement has outside of the university. So there are a lot of different types of workers at UVA. What's the difference between a contracted employee and a direct employee? So um, contract workers actually work for a different company that contracts with the university. So this is like Airmark that provides dining services, Kindercare provides childcare. It's a whole range of, of companies that provide this kind of thing. So this wage increase is expected to benefit 800 employees. And when I asked the spokesperson at UVA, they said they prioritize the biggest companies, like Airmark is huge, but there are few people left, about under 100 people who still make less than $15 and they're working on that. So Emily, you talked to one of the contracted workers that will get this raise in January. Tell us about his experience working for UVA. Yeah, so Sean Parker talked to me. He's a floor technician at UVA, a contract worker, and he said that he hasn't gotten a full dollar raise in six years of working at the university. He likes his job, wanted to hang on to it, but he really (laughs) expected more of a raise than that. So he started at under $11 and through this year still makes less than $12. And he lives near the university in the Orangedale Prospect neighborhood, He said that if he lived alone, his rent would cover his entire paycheck. Luckily, he splits that with his fiancée. And he also takes odd jobs moving furniture to help pay the bills and pay for his daughter when she stays with him. He said he's really looking forward (laughs) to (laughs) January. One of the things Mr. Parker said was that his wages kind of layer on top of his other experiences of living in Charlottesville for many years. And one of those pieces is this perception or reality that non-students get excluded from the corner. You know, there's been reports of uh, bars, for example, asking for IDs, for student IDs. So hearing about that kind of thing, even though he said he doesn't go to bars, but that experience of other people makes it feel like he's a second-class citizen in Charlottesville. 
And also there's places like 1515, which are officially university buildings you're locked out of if you don't have a student ID. Right. And I mean, clearly the the culture is very student oriented as well, which is understandable. But he was saying it's not the reverse situation. It's not like students are locked out of any other businesses throughout Charlottesville. I think you're part of the physical separation of UVA from a lot of the city led to that issue is that it was designed to be a little bit apart from the core of downtown. But now it's like as the city's kind of growing down West Main toward it, it feels like there needs to be some sort of greater inclusion with the surrounding citizens. So people are calling this $15 an hour wage a living wage. Is this really a living wage in Charlottesville? It it is by some metrics, but there was a candidate forum of, of city councilor candidates who were all talking about affordable housing on Wednesday. And they were saying that $15 an hour is still not enough to afford to live here. And if you look at, you know, one of the studies that was done locally, the Orange Dot Report that Piedmont Virginia Community College did, that shows that the costs of living in Charlottesville, including child care and transportation, are almost $22 an hour. I think that gets at how jobs are a big piece, but also providing affordability in the rest of, you know, affordable housing and transportation and childcare is also important. I can definitely speak from experience about that. When I first arrived in Charlottesville, I was making about $15 an hour and it was a bit of a stretch. And if you had looked at the Daily Progress had just formed a union and in some of the testimonials of former employees there had mentioned how little they made. They were Some of them weren't making $30,000 a year and had to take on second jobs just to make ends meet in Charlottesville. So that's on top of a job that's supposed to be 40 hours a week but never is and then having to deliver food after that. Is this raise expected to encourage other employers in Charlottesville to increase wages? I haven't heard any experts say that explicitly, but there does seem to be an increasing movement to focus on living wage. Um, there's that Living Wage Coalition of Central Virginia. They are trying to do a certification program and reward businesses and employers for doing having a $15 minimum wage. In terms of wealth and income inequality, How does Charlottesville compare to Virginia? One thing I wanted to talk about here is that poverty level is often not a good indication. College towns often seem like they're at, you know, have the worst inequality. But actually, some of those numbers are just based on students being included in those numbers. And that doesn't give you an exact portrayal of people's actual income. Because Um, a lot of students have no income or very little income. No income, but still have like family supporting them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, not true for all students. But one really good report to look at is the Opportunity Insights Project based out of Harvard. And, and this is quoting again, the Orange Dot Report pulled a little bit of that data and said that 97% of communities have higher mobility for poor children than Charlottesville does. Nationwide? Nationwide. I was trying to figure out where on Opportunity Insights that came from, but I've seen that quoted elsewhere. Is this raise likely to have a meaningful impact on the level of inequality here? So this, this is in conjunction with a raise that already happened for direct employees. And, you know, altogether, that's a huge chunk of the number of people who live in the area. And, I mean, UVA is by far the largest employer. So it, it does make a, a big difference bringing people's level to a place where housing is sort of within reach. 
I think that a key thing to talk about, and this is one of the things the University of Virginia Community Working Group um, recommended, is that changes at the university and other employers not just focus on a new minimum wage, but also a ladder of opportunity. Mm-hmm. This was another thing I talked to Mr. Parker about, and he said there was no way to get promoted unless someone else left. And nobody approached him with, okay, these are opportunities if you want. Do this thing and, then, and you could get promoted. Mm-hmm. So that kind of ladder is what would you know, eliminate these cycles of poverty that we talk about. And because of just the size of Charlottesville itself is that there's like one of a certain type of thing. So there's not that competition of an employee being able to say that, well, I can go across the street to this other company that will pay me $3 more Mm -hmm. and seeing if that will get countered. I think it's part of an ongoing thing that we're looking at, which is how are these big players, particularly the University of Virginia, which hasn't actively said it's going to be a partner with the community, I think, in, in this mm-hmm. at this level. What what does that new level of commitment look like and what are the actual actions that roll out? So for me, this was part of a series of articles that are looking at the university's new commitments, especially starting when President Ryan got into office. The university working group, again, recommended that the university intervene on housing, wages, health and education. It's interesting too with the whole General Assembly up for election in four days to think about the university as a state institution and its relationship to state laws like the Dillon Rule, for example. We can't raise the minimum wage citywide because we're a Dillon Rule state or the fact that the university doesn't have to pay taxes to the state on the or the city to the land that it owns. I mean, those are both things that were talked about in this city council candidate forum that happened on Wednesday. I heard Michael Payne in particular advocate for the for the university paying more taxes. So let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville Tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? Monday, I'm really interested. The New Hill Development Corporation is going to present on their small area plan. So this is a development corporation, which basically is like a nonprofit developer And the idea is they can help envision neighborhoods and and follow through in a way that no other organization can. They are working in the Star Hill neighborhood, which is basically where Vinegar Hill used to be and some residences that are still there. This is big. People have been waiting for this for a year, basically. So we'll see what happens. And I have a preview article that will be out. Another thing we can talk about is... It's election day next week. True. Yeah, it is election (laughs) day. (laughs) So on uh, November 1st will be our second Facebook Live. We'll have Charlotte and uh, our education reporter, Billy, talking about the upcoming elections. And we'll have uh, full coverage on Tuesday. All right. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Emily Hayes is a reporter and Captain Marvel costume maker covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM network. TWEJ.FM. WTJU and TJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia.
Today we're joined by UVA professor Anne Garland-Mahler. She's organizing an upcoming exhibition at the Bridge Progressive Arts Initiative. The exhibit opens November 1st and is titled Tri-Continental Acts of Solidarity. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Let's break down the title of the exhibit a little bit. What is the Tri-Continental? So the Tri-Continental is one of the most significant solidarity movements of the 20th century. The Tri-Continental was an alliance of liberation movements from 82 countries, from Africa, Asia, and Latin America, uh, that came together for the first time in Havana at the Tri-Continental Conference in 1966. And this is a movement that from that point on, actually until very recently, produced posters, magazines, films, um, all kinds of materials, books in English, Spanish, French, and Arabic, and distributed them all over the world for four decades. This movement played a pivotal role in generating international solidarity with the U.S. civil rights movement, as well as with the anti-apartheid struggle. And it had a vision of global resistance, but its vision was shaped by foundations in black internationalist thought and by the close involvement of African-American and Afro-Latinx activists. What will be on display at the bridge? Can you tell us a little bit about one of the materials? So on display at the bridge is going to be a number of these posters. And if you've never heard of the Tricontinental, its official name was the Organization of Solidarity with the Peoples of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, or the OSPAAAL. So if you go to Google Images and put in OSPAAL, sorry, OSPAAAL posters, you'll see a lot of these. And they're really colorful, beautiful. They state the solidarity with the different struggle in four different languages. So we'll have the posters. We're going to have um, a number of the, the magazines and some of the books as well. So people will be able to look through all of that. One specifically. So one of the things that is important to me about this movement is the way that a lot of the materials were produced through an exchange through the different organizations that were involved. So all of the materials, all of the posters, all of the magazines were produced in Cuba, but it was often through a dialogue, right? So there's one, a 1968 poster. The artist was Lázaro Abreu. It's a poster that was made in solidarity with the African-American struggle. And basically what Lázaro Abreu did was he took an image that was done originally by Emery Douglas for the Black Panther newspaper, and he cut it up and he changed the colors around and kind of changed, changed it around a little bit, put it out as an Ospal, as a, you know, tricontinental poster that would be distributed, you know, all over the world. And then Emery Douglas saw it and put it back in the Black Panther newspaper, you know. So there's a lot of that kind of exchange and back and forth going on, and people will get to see that. What kinds of discussions will take place around the exhibit? So we're going to have a month-long series of discussions, workshops. If you're interested in the history, I think coming on November 12th at 6 p.m. to the bridge, I'm going to be talking. I wrote a book on this movement. It's called From the Tricontinental to the Global South. It came out in 2018. So I'm going to be talking. Ryan Russell, who's a graduate student in politics, will also be talking. So we'll be talking about the history and having a discussion on November 16th at 3 p.m., that's a Saturday, uh, Zahir Qureshi, who made a number of the political posters that were used in August 2017 and 2018, she is going to be doing a workshop on making political posters. So that should be really fun for anybody who is interested in making uh, this kind of work. 
Then on November 18th at 6 p.m., uh, we're going to have a discussion with another, a local, uh, Zahir Qureshi is from Richmond, um, but we're going to have a discussion with a local Charlottesville poster artist and activist. His name is Luis Oyola, and we're going to have a conversation about art and activism. And finally, um, on I believe it's going to be on November 19th, uh, we're going to have a screening of some of the films associated with this movement. So there's been a resurgence in interest about the tricontinental solidarity movement. Why now? Absolutely. There is a real resurgence in interest. I mean, some of these posters have been in exhibits recently in Madrid and London and Liverpool. I spoke at one recently in Chicago. I just spoke at one last weekend in Midtown Manhattan. So there really is this kind of resurgence. And I think it's because we are in a renewed moment of global solidarity politics. People, you know, because of innovations in communication technologies, I mean, people can connect to struggles all over the world um, and understand the relationships between them, understand their struggle as shared. But most people don't have a really good sense of the history of solidarity movements and where this present moment, you know, the roots of this present moment. What can we as residents of Charlottesville learn from the Tricontinental? Related to your previous question about, you know, this resurgence of interest and and why now? You know, when I'm seeing all of these exhibits, you know, all over the world on the Tricontinental, it was really important to me to bring some of these materials to Charlottesville. So in the wake of August 2017, there were hundreds of solidarity marches around the world in solidarity with the counter protesters in Charlottesville with the racial justice activists in Charlottesville. Um, I'm a Latin Americanist by training and one of the critiques that you often hear from racial justice organizations in places like Latin America is that the racial justice movement in the U.S. has a tendency to be kind of nationalist focused or even regionalist focused. There's a sort of an insularity there. And I think that this helps us, gives us an opportunity to think deeper about the connections between our own struggles here in Charlottesville and struggles around the world, and also to think about the history of those kinds of internationalist visions. There's been so much programming related to racial justice activism in Charlottesville, the history of that activism in the U.S. South, in the U.S., but I really haven't seen a lot of programming, organizing events that have to do with situating that long struggle within a more global framework. And that's really what I'm most interested in. Are there any organizations that you see here kind of starting to work on that? I mean, you have all of the immigrant justice organizations that are fundamentally, have to be fundamentally internationalist in their vision. And, you know, we've had a huge surge in immigrant rights organizing in recent years. And I will say, you know, in the larger vision of Black Lives Matter, there's more and more a move towards internationalism, towards connections uh, to struggles in Palestine, for example. So in some of the work of some of those organizations that are that also have branches here in Charlottesville, you do see that. Well, thank you so much for Thanks coming for, to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment 
and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, as we do here on Soundboard, we turn to state news and politics, and we check in with our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion, and he's based over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Morning. So, Election Day is next Tuesday. We've been talking about this for months. Uh, It's now right around the corner. Reuters published a summary of kind of what we've been talking about for weeks, just about how this is sort of a political test. Uh, Virginia is a bellwether state for, for possible 2020 elections, and... You know, this is one of the only states doing elections that are actually competitive this year. So what's what's the overview of what's happening? You know, normally um, Virginia's off-year elections are usually pretty sleepy and ignored, but not this year. And obviously you've got a number of very important dynamics at work. The biggest, of course, is Donald Trump and the reaction to him and whether Democrats can use anti-Trump uh, feelings to muster victories. Um, it's also important to see, I mean, another issue of this is that for Virginia, this is a, a large step in the road because um, you're seeing the state become more purple as time goes on. You're seeing, you know, older, mostly Republican politicians sort of retire. People like uh, Bill Howell and others are gone. And a new, new crowd is coming in. You're seeing more <clears throat> diversity. You're seeing more uh, inflow from other countries and states. And you're seeing a lot of different attitudes. And this could end up with both the House of Delegates and the Senate becoming in Democratic hands, along with, of course, the um, governorship, lieutenant governorship and attorney general, which would be a very kind of interesting state of affairs. One that Virginia hasn't had in a very long time. Right. We've had, we haven't, the GOP hasn't won a statewide election, you know, meaning the top three offices since 2009, which is significant. But they've had stubborn control of, uh, both houses, and they've been able to shoot down such things, for example, for years like expanding Medicaid, uh, any meaningful gun control has been stymied, and, you know, on it goes. I mean, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment has never been, you know, ratified, and if, it, if Virginia ratifies it, that's it for the country it's in. So all these things come together, sort of a cusp of things. You know, one of the things that is a marker of how big this election is is how much money is flowing in, a lot from in the state and a lot from out of the state. Mm-hmm. There are now a slew of candidates who have raised more than a million dollars in these state elections in like three weeks, which is an amount unthinkable for an entire campaign just a few cycles ago. I mean, what's what's going on? Exactly. Here? Exactly. And I mean, just, just a little bit of context. I mean, even before this last you know burst of funding, it had been a really remarkable year because, you know, money coming in from, uh, you know, people, Democrats from all over. I mean, it used to be the big, you know, the big power people would be like Dominion and, and Altria and Comcast and maybe a coal company or two would come in and, and really, you know, help mostly uh, Republican people. But now you're seeing people not taking money from Dominion and instead taking money from Michael Bills, a billionaire uh, hedge fund guy in the Charlottesville area who's pretty progressive in his thinking and his wife. And you're seeing more and more money you know, coming in. And then you've seen in the last week or two weeks or three weeks, you've seen you know, a whole slew of money coming in, um, both sides. Um, 
You know, you've seen like Kirk Cox has gotten like $153,000, while his opponent, Sheila Bynum Coleman, has gotten $140,000 in, in a last-minute kick. Uh, Glenn Sturdivant, a uh, Republican near uh, Richmond area, got $1.2 million, while his uh, Ghazala Hashmi, his opponent in the Democrats' uh for Senate has gotten 1.14 million. This is just in a matter of days. And these kinds of, of last minute donations, you know, have been all around the state. And it's really remarkable. Right. Well, earlier you alluded to the change, uh, the changing demographics of Virginia, you know, new people moving in, uh, new kinds of people moving in. That has, though, largely been an urban and suburban phenomenon. And the Virginia Mercury this week asks, do Democrats have a rural future? talking about how uh, there are some some Democrats running in districts that are frankly pretty firmly Republican that are out more in more rural places. Take me through what they're saying and, and what you think. Well, I mean, it's a very interesting issue because, I mean, you do have a number of people running in more rural areas, which traditionally were Democratic. And um, there are more socially Republican, rather, Republican areas. Uh, they're more traditionally socially Republican in the sense that they want gun rights. They're anti-abortion. They're maybe kind of skiffy about homosexual marriage, things like that. And it's not so much that they really want to have exact, you know, strict financial spending rules. Maybe they do. They also are interested in, in trying to get some something for their areas, which have been pretty much neglected. And there's big outmigration in them. And so what the Democrats can do, they're finding a few things that they can really work on. And they already made issues in expanding broadband, for example. And there are a number of initiatives, some by Democrats, some by Republicans, but mostly by Democrats now, to really expand you know, getting some kind of more public system than relying on the big three or four privately held or or, or, or for, you know, stock market type companies. The other issue that's huge in the rural areas that could be a, a big issue for the Democrats is providing health care. Because so many hospitals and clinics are closing because their companies pull them out and they go bankrupt. And then if you have a, a serious injury or illness, you have to drive 90 minutes to get help. And that's just wrong. So I don't know how they're going to fix it, but that's a ready, readily made you know, issue for them. Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough one in all in all the ways because, like you and I've talked about, I mean, the future for rural Virginia as a whole is is a tough outlook, and and it's like you say, without migration, we're to the point now where less than one in eight Virginians lives in a rural area. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, of course, that what happens in that case politically is that usually Republicans dominate, and what really matters is the primary. The actual election doesn't matter because oftentimes in the past, Democrats haven't even bothered to put up a candidate. So you have, you know, often have two or three candidates running for the Republican primary, and that's really the election. And that's sort of a weird way to do it. Yeah. Well, Peter, in our last little bit here, I want to talk about a passing this week of former Governor Jerry Belisles. Uh, take me through the, the life and legacy of, of this former governor. Jerry Belisles, well, he was uh, governor um, before Doug Wilder. Um, he was uh, the Democrat. He was known as a very mild, uh, bookish kind of guy, kind of an autodidactic. He used to read Chinese history on his own. He's from Southside, grew up in a fairly poor family, ended up going to UVA Law. The two big things that, that Belisles managed to do was that he really got some cohesion to transportation planning, especially in Northern Virginia. Another big thing he did 
was that he managed to um, really do something with the Chesapeake Bay and, 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 and sort of linked uh, the bay in Virginia to a regional program that over the years has really shown some fruit. I mean, the bay's cleaner now than it was back in the 80s. Another thing he did, he helped bring female cadets at Virginia Military Institute, which is a positive thing. But all in all, he had a fairly quiet but uh, strong legacy, and he you know, died of, of kidney cancer. Yeah. The uh, Washington Post uh, described him as, as like boldly cautious, <laughs> which was you know, sort of this oxymoron. Yeah, but... well, that's the way he was. I mean, yeah. He wasn't, uh, you know, like a George Allen, like, you know, slap you on the back and, you know, build another prison, something like that. Yeah, he just kind of got things done. Yeah. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Sure. Take care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee, production assistance this week by Justine Baird. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. 